Welcome to season three of the Jesus Said Love podcast. I'm your host, Emily Mills. And I'm your other host, Brett Mills. We are founders, we're creatives, we're entrepreneurs, and we're activists. We're musicians, and we love Jesus. We've learned a lot serving the Jesus Said Love community, and this is the space we'll get to talk about it. Ever learning, ever growing, ever loving. So come with us and explore how we can awaken hope and empower change together to create more space for love. Hey, Emily. That's weird. Emily. <laughs> Creepy. Emily. Don't. No, I like that. <laughs> and so and here's why. Just never know what's going to happen. Here is oh why. It is because we are in person for the yes. first time in a minute. In a long time. We've oh, been doing these. That. We've been doing these dead gum podcasts. Over yes. Zoom and all sorts of nonsense, and it sounds weird, and there's garbly business going on. Well, technology, while we've all gotten really used to it, and we've learned a lot, and we've learned what we can do, it's there's still all these glitches. Yes, for sure. And there's just still a lack of connection. I mean, it's been so cool, because we've been able to have podcast guests from all over the United States, but you do miss that. Just Were like, you about to say the world? Yeah, we haven't had a world, <laughs> a world leader, a world expert. We should get a world we should person. Get, yeah, let's get a world person on the cast. Right, that that's true. Let's get our people okay. on that. I'll work on it. Yeah, get our people on it. Okay. Yeah, all of our people. You do, yeah, yeah. Get our team. Me. Get our team on okay. that. I'll let her know. <laughs> How about I let her know? Hey, okay, em, great. get us a world yeah. person. <laughs> Um, I've had a lot of podcast guests who I've been able during the pandemic because authors, um, speakers, artists were home locked, you know? Mm -hmm. And so I've, I was really able to connect via Instagram to get all these really great podcast guests. But the lucky thing today is that I didn't have to slide in anybody's DMs to get a podcast uh, (laughs) gig. I was able to text our friend and advocate who we had on one year ago. Uh, to really almost to the day mm-hmm. when the pandemic started, Dr. Sue Battle, welcome to the show Thank again. You. So so glad to be back. It is so weird to think that back then we were talking about what to do in a pandemic, and I remember you talking about you know a handkerchief over your face right. and who knew the wow that was, bowels of yes. humanity that we would wow. descend into i mean we really were at the very beginning of the pandemic talking about acceptable face masks yep. and coverings and uh what should strippers do to minimize contact and That's exposure right. i mean That's it was right. the very beginning it was nothing was shut down fully yet nope. oh. and it was like what does respiratory droplets mm-hmm. mean yep. i remember yep. just asking those yeah. very technical questions of how is this virus contracted? Yeah, it was at the very beginning of everything and yeah. new information coming out, I felt like, every day mm-hmm. yeah. at that point. Man, and who knew it would become so political wow. and all the things. Wow. My goodness. And here we are vaccinated. Here we are. <laughs> well, I'm going to be honest <laughs> yeah. in full disclosure, I am not vaccinated, but here's my logic. So speak to this, Sue, if you need <laughs> to. I have been getting my... So I had a severe case yes, yes. of COVID back uh, last summer. Um, I still have thriving, yes. bumping antibodies. Yes. So and I I'm should getting, clarify then. We are we are all inoculated, uh, immunized, immunized, and we all have antibodies. How yes. about that? So here's my thought. Tell me if my logic is is faulty. My thought is I'm every quarter I'm gonna get my antibodies checked to make sure that I have them. And then when they start to wane, then I'll 
consider maybe Sure, no, up. I think that makes sense. Because I know that people have had, I know people who have had the infection who were just curious to see if their antibody levels were still high and have gone to their doctor to get those checked for that reason. Yeah. To see. And I know someone that's um, still got really high antibody levels and she had infection back in, I think, October. So mm. here we are four, right. five, yeah. six months well, after. Was June. And, oh, really? Yeah. yeah. And so everyone's different. You know, I think yeah. the CDC... Um, Guideline is if you've if you are three months out from infection, you are still good to not have to quarantine if you've been mm-hmm. exposed potentially things like that. But they do say that everyone's antibody levels can differ mm-hmm. depending so on how much infection you had, how mm-hmm. severe your symptoms were, and things like that. So I everyone's like, different. I yeah. feel like socially or even culturally, we've learned so much about the immune system mm-hmm. <laughs> oh my gosh. in this world we're living in, yeah. and we still don't know anything about it. Yeah. <laughs> Well, I'm excited we're all healthy and I'm really excited we're still here because that is not the case for anyone. Um, And this month is really, you're starting off our May episode, which is Mental Health Awareness Month, Mm -hmm. which is AAPI, Asian American Pacific Islander Mm -hmm. Heritage Month. Um, And we're, we're talking really all across the board about things that impact mental health awareness, ways that we can learn more so that we can uh, know more, do more. And one of the things that impacts our mental health is obviously I'm a survivor of childhood sexual abuse. Uh, Childhood sexual abuse absolutely has a lasting impact on the life of a person, of a child. Uh, even into adulthood. And so um, really wanted to bring you on just to talk about your work in the advocacy. You're a pediatrician. Mm-hmm. You oversee safe nur- nurses, which is, let me see if I get this right, sexual assault forensic exam? That's correct. Okay. Yeah. So you oversee the safe nurses. Correct. And you work locally with our advocacy center, Crimes Against Women and Children. Yes. And yeah, tell us all about... Why are you so passionate? How did you get into doing this work as a pediatrician? So it's interesting. When I did my pediatric training at UTMB Galveston um, for my residency, one of the rotations we have to do is child abuse. Mm. Um, So I shadowed, um, we did, um, it was called, I think, the ABC Clinic in Galveston at the time. And uh, the faculty member, his name was Dr. Jim Lucifer. And so I remember... Um, doing that month-long rotation, and my eyes were kind of open to um, how much child abuse there is, physical abuse, sexual abuse, neglect, um, and knowing that there was not really a stereotypical child that could be a victim of that. Yeah. Um, And so that, I found it very um, fascinating, heartbreaking, um, also hopeful, the pediatricians and doctors that took care of those children. Um, the social workers, case managers, there was such a team effort. I also um, did many rotations of pediatrics during medical school. And one of the pediatricians that I shadowed in Austin for a three-month period of time happened to be the child sexual abuse examiner of the advocacy center in Austin. Mm. So it was kind of like this this field kept coming up in my life. Like, Mm -hmm. Like, I think it was... Uh, maybe God's way of saying, this is, look, look at this. This is something that you um, might be able to do something with in your mm-hmm. life. So fast forward, moved to Waco in 2005, and I had taken some time off to raise my son, Sam, who was a two-year-old at the time when we first moved to Waco. And I got involved in the community who started um, 
joining boards and organizations. I joined the Junior League. Um, I was invited to be on the board of the Advocacy Center for Crime mm-hmm. Victims and Children back mm-hmm. in 2008. So that was when I first got involved locally with mm-hmm. um, trying to advocate for children, women, men, anyone who was a victim of crime. Um, way back then, I remember Dr. Ann Sims saying to me, um, she was the one that did the child sexual abuse exams for 20 plus years. Mm. But I remember back then, maybe it was around 2010, she said, eventually I'm going to have to retire. <laughs> um, do you think you would be interested in taking over the child sexual abuse exams? And at the time I was like, I think I'm supposed to say yes. Mm. Yes. I, mm. I don't think now. Yeah. Um, and she said, well, it's not going to be now, but sometime in the future. And I said, I think I'm supposed to do that. Mm. Yes. I think, I think come back to me in a couple of years and see what I say. So right about then too, I think that was also in 2008, um, I was on the board. I had a little, uh, three, four year old son, Sam. Um, and I said, you know what? Nobody ever talks about child sexual abuse. Like I would, I, I teach my son about private parts and keeping Mm -hmm. private parts private. And, And so I invited about eight of my mom friends and their little kids. And I said, hey, there's a a Dr. Berkeley at the advocacy Mm -hmm. center and he's awesome. And I'm going to have him come and do like a little puppet show. He does this great little puppet show. And why don't we bring our kids Mm. and and show them how to keep their private parts private and just do a quick little 20 minute thing. Mm -hmm. Um, And so he did that for us. And then. Two years later, I said, hey, let's invite some more people. I think it was then like 20, 25 moms and their kids. Mm-hmm. Um, and he did it for us one more time. And then I called it Camp Careful okay. that time. So that was in 2008? Yeah. The first okay. one was 2008. In 2010, I said, we'll call it Camp Careful and Cupcakes. And I bribed the kids with cupcakes. <laughs> <laughs> I said, if we can get all these kids here, I'll give them cupcakes. And yeah. the moms were like, okay, that sounds great. So I called it Camp Careful and Cupcakes at the time. And that was 2010, and then it has just grown into this yeah. huge So what program. is what is Camp Careful now? So um, Camp Careful evolved because um, I think after 2010, the, my, my mom friends were like, well, our kids know you. You're a pediatrician. You have this great way with children. Um, why don't you teach the class from now on? And I said, okay, that sounds great. I could do that. And we kind of outgrew the space at the advocacy center where Dr. Berkeley was doing the class for us. So that was when I um, asked my church, First United Methodist, if they could host me. Mm -hmm. Um, And we moved to First United Methodist and started doing these Camp Careful classes. And it was kind of just by word of mouth that it grew. Mm -hmm. Um, By that time, I had started working at Baylor Scott & White Pediatrics. And I remember being in a doctor's appointment, like someone was coming to see me with their kid for like a sore throat or something. And and the mom said, are you Dr. Battle with the Camp Careful? And I said, I am. And she said, well, how do we get on your secret email list? (laughs) (laughs) I wasn't trying to. I was like, is there a secret email list? I didn't know there was. And she's like, well, I I keep hearing about this list of um, moms that are on an email list of um, people to get invited to your camp careful. I was like, oh, it's just kind of everyone forwards it to everyone else. And Mm. um, so that was when I was like, okay, maybe I should make a website or something. Mm -hmm. And 2015, I think I did a website, um, Penn State scandal with uh, Mm -hmm. Jerry Sandusky happened 2011, 2012. So all of these things kind of happened where parents were needing information, wanting information on how to keep their kids safe. I had 
at least some bit of name recognition with that Camp Careful Mm -hmm. um, program with the little kids. And so I made a website, I made a um, Facebook page, and then it just kind of blew up. Um, When that happened, when I I did social media and started doing bigger classes at the church, um, at this point, my son was seven or eight years old. And so then I split it into different age groups. Mm -hmm. And so... We had like a three to six year old class where I'm kind of teaching it uh, the importance of, um, you know, body part names, using the anatomical names correctly, um, teaching kids safety rules about their body. Mm-hmm. And then seven to 12 year old class was about, you know, being the boss of your body and learning that you have control of your body. You don't have to give people hugs or family members hugs mm-hmm. because everybody else says so. Mm-hmm. Um, and so... Then my son turned into a teenager, and then I added a teenager class, and then I added a high school class, and it's just evolved as my own children have gotten older. Sure. And as I've learned um, what things are important, also having done my job now at the Advocacy Center doing child sexual abuse exams for six years now, learning what um, things have happened as children have been groomed, um, what yeah. things they heard, yeah. um, what made them not tell people. So as, as I was, was seeing hundreds and hundreds of children um, doing child sexual abuse exams, um, I became even more passionate about doing Camp Careful mm-hmm. because I could see kind of the trajectory, trajectory and of the what vulnerability. happens. Yes, right? absolutely. Mm-hmm. And the mental health, you talked about mental right. health, seeing how um, these girls and boys were self harming, they were cutting, they were having depression and anxiety and these feelings of guilt. And I mean, just seeing everything, um, that a child goes through, um, Mm. before they're abused and after. Yeah. I want to, I want to stop you right there because you just said hundreds and hundreds of exams that you've done. Yes. So that indicates that there have been hundreds and hundreds of kids who have been Sexually abused. For sure, yes. Well, yeah. Which yeah. leads me to, <laughs> yeah. I, I just think most people don't think it happens that often. True. So let me tell you a statistic that I tell children in these Camp Careful classes. Now, again, my Camp Careful classes are very age appropriate. So three to six-year-olds, I'm not talking about sexual abuse at all. Mm-hmm. I don't think I ever utter those words. Mm-hmm. Um, I talk about, I frame it in body safety rules, like, and I start the conversation with, you remember all these safety rules that your parents have taught you about, like, how do you cross the street? And mm-hmm. how do you stay safe in the car? And that's how I start the little kids class. Then um, as we've gotten into the older classes, then I can kind of start talking about what sexual abuse is mm-hmm. and, and keeping your body safe. When I'm talking to kids, middle schoolers and high schoolers, oftentimes um, they will be thinking, uh, particularly boys, they will be thinking, well, this is not going to happen to me. Mm. Um, Girls think it too, but boys also especially think, well, that couldn't happen to me. I'll defend myself. I'll beat them up, you know, Mm -hmm. things like that. Um, So what I tell kids in in the um, middle school and high school classes, raise your hand if you know somebody in your family, your friends, or you just know somebody that has asthma. Every single kid raises their hand. Then I tell them child sexual abuse happens more often than childhood asthma because Mm. statistics show one in 12 children have asthma. One in 10 kids, that's the newest statistic we use, one in 10 kids will be sexually abused by the time they turn 18. Mm. That is something that people... Children, teenagers, and adults can all grasp is mm-hmm. asthma 
how prevalent that is. We all know, and, we and all I talk say, about and it. we all talk about yeah. it. We all can recognize someone with symptoms. Mm-hmm. We all um, know what they need: an inhaler. Mm-hmm. They need um, oxygen sometimes. They need steroids. We all recognize signs and symptoms of asthma. We talk about it. It's prevalent. And yet child sexual abuse is even more prevalent than childhood asthma. Mm. And we don't recognize signs. We don't know how to help somebody. Um, So that tells you the um, amount of child sexual abuse happening. And that, again, makes me want to go out and talk about it all the time with children and parents. And So let's just define... What is what what constitutes child sexual abuse? Okay. Because sometimes I think that even in previous generations, there were misunderstandings or myths of what constituted child sexual abuse, mm-hmm. what didn't. So how do we define? Because it is a broad term. Very broad, yes. So how do we define it? How so do you define? I it? define child sexual abuse is abuse of a minor, and again. The every state has different rules, but um, in in the state of Texas, child sexual abuse is under the age of seventeen, mm-hmm. and it's abuse that involves any sort of sexual activity or um, anything that involves genitalia in a sexual manner. Mm-hmm. Okay, so so I start with that, and then I say there there's different types of child sexual abuse that you when again when I'm talking to teenagers and parents that you may not know um, is included in sexual abuse. And that may be even exposure of genitalia. Mm -hmm. So I start with that because that's not even touching. There you go. So I say if someone exposes uh, genitalia to a minor under the age of 17, that is indecency by exposure. Yep. That's child sexual assault Mm -hmm. charge in the state of Texas. And that also includes... If they're showing porn to a minor, yes, not so, even their own genitalia, yeah, right, right, and so that's and then you start getting into child, into pornography uh-huh. um, rules too, which are separate. Okay, um, so indecency by exposure, so exposure of genitalia has nothing to do with contact, and that's still still child sexual assault. Then there's um, I tell them even if there's fondling over clothes, uh-huh. so that is indecency by contact. Even if it's overclosed. And so people think, well, they didn't really do anything yeah. inside or on the right. skin. They or didn't actually rape, touch penetrate. it. Right. Exactly. But that's still sexual Absolutely. assault. So I go over those examples. Exposure, fondling over clothes, child pornography is child sexual assault. Mm-hmm. Um <clears throat> making a child perform in a sexual manner. So then I do touch mm-hmm. on trafficking mm-hmm. um, and explaining what trafficking is and asking people if they've heard of trafficking. And most kids, mm-hmm. mid- middle school and high school, have heard of human trafficking, have heard of sex trafficking, but maybe don't know exactly what that is. Mm-hmm. I tell them how common it is in Central Texas. They think it doesn't happen in Waco. Mm-hmm. And I say it actually happens in Waco yeah. a lot. Yeah. <laughs> so I go over the different examples because I agree. I think people think child sexual assault means that someone had you know, penile vaginal penetrating sex. And that's, yes. there's so many other things that can happen that we know is not right um, involving sexual activity with a minor. And all of those things, it doesn't have to mean penetration for it to right. be sexual assault. What about kissing? Kissing will not be a charge of sexual assault. But, it, and even sometimes touching breasts is mm. not... Yeah, um, so I mean, you and I yeah. know that that's mm. inappropriate, especially if we're talking about an adult 
But breasts are not genitalia. Correct. Yes. So um, now a lot of times um, I think there is maybe um, I, I need to clarify on this for sure. Don't quote me on this for sure, but breast, there might be a, a lesser charge on that, mm-hmm. but it's not genitalia. So mm-hmm. there's, there's different rules with breast. Mm-hmm. Kissing is not mm-hmm. at the all. Reason, the reason I bring up kissing is because if you've got that crazy Uncle Eddie, mm-hmm. that you're going to the family event, mm-hmm. and he comes in for a sloppy wet kiss, yeah. there's that moment of, well, I don't, it is, don't and, want that. And psychologists would say you were sexually abused. Psychologists, the emotional damage of an older, the power differential, the harassment, the manipulation of what it took for that uncle, they would say, yeah, you're, pres- of course, that is arousing to this yes, older sure. uncle. Well, and it's a potentially traumatic event as yes, well. Yes, totally. And I would venture to say that that would progress if no one stopped that. Right, mm. right. That is probably their way of, um, Maybe grooming and trying to see what boundaries they can push to right. see if the child allows it, see if the parents allow it. Because mm-hmm. yeah. um, that's what they'll start with. I mean, the, in the whole grooming process with sexual abuse, they'll start with um, desensitizing things mm-hmm. to see how far they can go to normalize it for the child. And then they progress to something else. Mm-hmm. So if someone's giving a sloppy, wet, nasty kiss, and the child doesn't say anything about it, and the parents don't say anything about it, then they're going to normalize that. The child is normalizing that now. The perpetrator is saying, okay, well, she let me do that. Mm-hmm. Next time we're in a room alone, I'll, I'll move it a little bit further along mm-hmm. and see what happens. Mm-hmm. Um, is, the, is the age difference in power differential, isn't it five years? Or, or regarding, because there's child on child, where that starts to happen, if there's child-on-child child or incest and things like that. So, so again, there are different rules. So if we do see a lot of child-on-child child, um, sexual assaults mm-hmm. or sexual incidents happening. Now, first off, as a pediatrician, developmentally, there's normal curiosity and sexual development of right. a child. What we look for with red flags would be, is it a big age differential? Right. So different age groups, like if you have an older teenager mm-hmm. exploring the body of an elementary student, yes. that's a huge red flag. Yeah. So let's talk about legally later. But when we're talking about child children, you know, playing together and, and maybe touching each other or looking mm-hmm. at each other, that's normal childhood sexual development unless mm-hmm. there's a big, a big age group difference or if there's more sexual type behavior, not mm-hmm. just curiosity and looking and touching, but sexualized behaviors, right? Um, then that's what we start looking for. So there's red flags that differentiate it from normal sexual childhood development. Um, when we're talking about legally though, so, so we do see a lot of children on children mm-hmm. that's normal. And we do also see children on children that's criminal. Mm-hmm. In the state of Texas, a perpetrator has to be 10 years or older okay. for it to be a charge. So if it's a nine-year-old doing very sexual things to a child, they will not be charged. Yeah. Um, but we will obviously try to provide services and figure sure. out counseling and things like that. Yeah, because what's happening to that nine-year-old? Exactly. So right? then we also, of course, at the advocacy center would interview that child for risk right. and see what's going on. Right. Um, so a 10-year-old can be charged. Um, obviously, they would go through a juvenile system. Um, if we have like a 15 year old on an eight year old Mm -hmm. or or 21 Mm -hmm. to a 10 year old, you know, then those all start getting charged with a a sexual assault crime Mm -hmm. in the state of Texas. 
So we have kind of two things to look at when we're talking about children on children. One is the alleged perpetrator 10 years and older. Mm-hmm. Um, will they be charged? What was the actual thing that happened? Um, and then we do see a lot of teenagers perpetrating on younger children. And again, we still do interview those older teenagers sure. and see what's going on. Yeah, it, it is learned behavior. And when you talk about desensitizing or grooming, you know, that is a process. Yes. And it really, I think most people don't understand that just like trafficking, most people are trafficked by people they know. Most people yes. are sexually abused That's correct. by people that they know. Right, 90 to 95% of the time. Yeah. Children are sexually abused by someone they know. So we're talking mm-hmm. teachers, family members, yep. coaches, quote, boyfriends right. or right. or friends down the street, whatever it yes. is. Um, but that desensitization begins to happen over a process of time, which is why it's so important that they know them. Yes. Because it's not yes. like one day a kid walks in and is assaulted. Right. It is, it is a grooming. So I talk about that with teenagers um, in, in Camp Careful about, and I say a lot of times teenagers think, well, that won't happen to me. I'm safe I, or I'm in a good relationship or I'm a guy. I, you know, there's a lot of reasons why, of course, kids think that that couldn't happen to them. And I talk about grooming and mm-hmm. I say, this is the process. It's not usually, um, I tell them 90% of the time it's someone you know and love. Six, mm-hmm. 35% of the time it's family. Yeah. 35% of the 35%, time it's family. Yeah. And so, and then the other 60, you know, 55, 60% of the time, it's someone you and your family trust. Yeah. So don't be looking for the creepy white van going around the park is what right. I tell them, you know? And I say, so if it is someone you know and love and trust, then how do you see that coming? Well, then I talk about grooming. Like this is, you know, it's a process that they're going to that, that through that will be weeks or months um, that make it difficult for a child and a teenager to understand what's happening. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I tell them, you know, they identify specifically the person or child that they want to target that might be a little bit more at risk, vulnerable. Um, someone's not paying attention to them. They have a difficult home situation. Mm-hmm. Maybe they have a great family situation and they just are looking for love and attention from somewhere mm-hmm. else. There's a lot of reasons. They target a specific person. They start um, manipulating their environment, whether that's family the um, social situations that they're in, Mm. then they start figuring out what that child wants and needs. Like, what does that child want? What Mm. are, what is that child's interest? And I asked the teenagers, where do you think people find out what your interests are? Social media. They post Mm. everything on social media. So they figure out what you love to do, what you want to do. Mm -hmm. Then they start giving you the things that you need and want and start showering you with gifts and money and attention attention and love and telling you the things that you want to hear. Then they isolate you from your friends and your family. And then they start desensitizing with innocent things like massages and, Mm -hmm. you know, showing you maybe some naked pictures and showing you pornography, mm-hmm. kissing you more than you think that that should be normal, Mm -hmm. um, desensitizing, and then they initiate the sexual abuse. And by that time, we're talking weeks and months. Mm -hmm. And then once the sexual abuse has happened, they manipulate and control you so that you don't tell anybody. Right. And and typically because it's someone you know, then it does make it harder to come forward. Because if 35% is family, you don't want to tell on a family member. Right. You want to protect the family. That's right. And so the the maintaining um, control and secrecy can be because of that. They'll say things like, well, no one's going to believe you. You know, if it's family, they'll be like, no mm-hmm. one's going to believe you. Like, mm-hmm. or you, you were 
playing along with it. You mm-hmm. you, you took this. this. Yes, you yeah. wanted this. You took the stuff mm-hmm. I gave you. You wanted the attention. You wanted the love. Or they'll say, this is how I show love. Like, this is love. Yeah. Mm. I want to go back. You, you talked about healthy childhood sexual development. Mm-hmm. And perhaps curiosity or even playing doctor. Yes, yep. It's is kind of a part of development. Right. You know, for our younger parents out there, you have younger kids, mm-hmm. don't freak out yes. if you walk in on that. Yes. Because mm-hmm. then you're bringing the shame game. Yeah, yes, yes, yes. And that screws things up. Um, so here's what we know about pornography. The newest statistic is the average age of exposure today is eight. Yeah. Have you seen uh, how that might influence that childhood, healthy childhood sexual sure. development? But mm. now you mix in this monster of pornography yes. yeah. that they don't fully necessarily understand. But Pandora's box has now been unlocked. Yes. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, and I see. Um, we we will see cases at the advocacy center who they they come in for interviews and, and sometimes make it to getting a medical exam for me where young children will be um, performing or doing sexual acts on on a younger child. And we do sometimes hear, we say, you know, because they, of course, we'll ask, like, um, how, how did you know to do that? Like, yeah. where did you, where did you um, know to do that? And a lot of, oh, I have had lots of kids say, I so-and-so showed me porn. Mm-hmm. And that would be an older mm-hmm. teenager. Mm-hmm. Um, or sometimes an adult, for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, and so... We do have to kind of weed out or figure out if that sexual um, interaction between that child and a younger child was solely because he, he learned it from pornograph- pornography or did something happen to him as well. Right. Um, so, of course, that's what our job is as the, the forensic interviewers do a fantastic job asking those types mm. of questions and figuring it out. I want to ask about this because I think a lot of people don't know when we say like forensic interview. Mm-hmm. So let's say there's been, um, you suspect or, or it's reported that a child has been sexually abused and then they would be brought to the advocacy center mm-hmm. or to the hospital <clears throat> in some cases. And maybe a doctor would call mm-hmm. for it. Maybe a doctor would see in a child a yeast infection yep. or marks, uh, reoccurring things that aren't normal, and he would call for a forensic exam. What is that process? Yeah, that's a great question. I love I love talking about our process because you're right. A lot of people don't know how children, women, men get services at the advocacy center. So talking about children, uh, whoever it is that is reporting it. So 40 to 50% of the time with children, it is reported at school, Mm. school officials. So that's why I love going to talk to schools and having the counselors and teachers and administrators hear the talk as well, because they are so, so important in the fight against child sexual abuse. So whoever it is that's reporting, whether it's a doctor's office, an adult, a family member, family friend, or school official, or whoever it is, pastor, they report it they are legally obligated to report it to somebody. Now that needs to be either law enforcement or CPS. Uh So with any child, it is a crime. So I, when I go out and teach uh, administrators at school districts, um, I tell them if we're talking about a child victim or even a suspicion, you're obligated to report. It's always a crime with a child. So I say to report it to both law enforcement and CPS Mm. and 
sometimes CPS doesn't need to be involved at all because CPS is making sure a child is safe in their home. If it is a perpetrator that's not even in their home, CPS will investigate and close it. Mm-hmm. Um, not to say that abuse isn't happening, but if it, the child is safe in their home, then they CPS won't. closes it. Yeah, because they they know that the child's family is supportive and doing what they need for the child. So I say, okay, so it reports it's reported to law enforcement or CPS. CPS and or law enforcement then calls our intake coordinator at the advocacy center to arrange a forensic interview. Mm -hmm. So that's how we get the case first at the advocacy center. The forensic interviewers, we have three fantastic forensic interviewers at the advocacy center. They will schedule an interview with one of them in that way. And oftentimes CPS will have made first contact already um, and talk to the family and mm-hmm. child. And, and they usually, hopefully, don't ask too many questions because they know a forensic interview is coming. Mm-hmm. The point of the forensic interview is to do a um, legally sound, um, complete, comprehensive interview of a child with law enforcement and CPS able to um, watch live in mm-hmm. a separate room. So we have it where the interviewer and the child is alone, and there's a video camera streaming live to the room next door where law enforcement and CPS can watch because we do not want a child to have to go through four different set right. of questions. Hmm. That is very traumatic for yes. the child. Because you're re-traumatizing. You're re- yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So the point of the forensic interview is so that we can all get the information at one time, but the forensic interviewer is trained to do it the right way. Um, so a forensic interview is done. Law enforcement or CPS um, will try to watch live if they can. And then out of those children who get a forensic interview, law enforcement and or CPS will decide, do we need to get a medical? Mm. Now, I wish I could do a medical exam on every child who's been sexually abused in the way that we've talked about all the different definitions. Mm. I don't have enough time or copies of me mm-hmm. <laughs> to do because we do see thousands of children mm. yeah. a year. Yeah. So um, we, they usually, so if like, if we say, uh, let's say the child says he was fondled over the clothes mm-hmm. one time, they won't do a medical. Sure. But if we have concern about um, penetration, injuries, sexually transmitted infections, pregnancy, any medical concern, even mental health concerns, mm. then they'll schedule a medical with me. Mm-hmm. Um, so then I will do a medical exam. Now, there are two components of medicals um, at the advocacy center. If an assault has happened within the last five days, that's where they would go get a safe exam okay. in an emergency room mm-hmm. with our specially trained safe nurses. I do the delayed outcry child sexual abuse exams mm-hmm. because I'm not going to get forensic evidence, uh-huh. you know, like DNA, sperm, things like that. Uh-huh. That's all gone. Uh Um, usually after three days, but we will extend that period of five days where they need to go get a forensic kit done, Mm -hmm. commonly known as the rape kit. Mm -hmm. I see the delayed outcry um, child sexual abuse exams. Most children will get a delayed outcry because they have usually been getting, um, having been sexually abused over an extended period of time. Mm -hmm. And it has been usually an extended period of time before they've told somebody. Yeah. Um, so most children will end up getting a delayed outcry medical with me versus having to go to the emergency room. But we see plenty of kids also mm-hmm. at the hospitals. 
Um, you know, you said, I guess it was 40% of reports are made by school mm-hmm. administration of childhood sexual abuse. And of course we know in 2020 school wasn't happening. Yes. So that was, um, troublesome to all of us at yeah. the Axie Center because when everything shut down in COVID in March and everybody was at home, mm-hmm. our numbers were zero pretty mm. much in March and the beginning of April because we were also... Um, sent home. Law enforcement weren't even getting reports um, because children were stuck at home, potentially with With their their perpetrator or potentially just it had happened before, but now they don't have anybody they can tell. They can't even tell their friends. So a lot of times children will tell their friend too. Um, That's usually the first person they tell is a friend, Mm -hmm. not an adult. Um, So March, beginning of April, No reports coming in. No reports coming into us. Law enforcement said we're not getting anything. Then April is when I feel like we started. Some people have to go back to work. We had the essential people going back out, right? Uh Um, We started getting a little bit more. We were certainly going back and doing forensics and medicals. I was like, call me. (laughs) Like, I'm ready. Like, you know, the forensic interviews started happening for sure. And then as schools were opening up more and more and kids were coming back a little bit, um, no, you know what? I think daycare virtual summer. Yes. Well, I guess daycares probably open back up some, it seemed like. Yeah. I often. feel like it started trickling in and then summer people started going back to work mm-hmm. and then children were making outcries. I found to friends, um, or other outside extended family members. Mm. So that is how, um, I found in the summer it started happening a little bit more mm-hmm. is they were then like, okay, well I don't have school to tell. So I'm going to have to tell somebody else. Yeah. So then it started coming back in and then, gosh, it's been so busy since right. this school year started. Yeah. How much did we see happening over virtual or gaming or sexting? Do y'all, is that reported to you guys or does that go straight to criminal when it, when it comes to like, um, exposure or sending nudes or, or an older person on a gaming device? Like, uh, that will often come to um, crimes against children, the the Waco mm-hmm. or law enforcement or wherever it happened, that will also get reported to law enforcement. Yes, mm-hmm. and then again, what we're finding with teenagers, if they are meeting somebody on social media or gaming, then they'll start asking for you know the perpetrator will start asking for nude pictures. Mm-hmm. Then it will lead to them trying to meet up with them. Totally, complete. I yeah. tell the teenagers again, it is it is a different generation where relationships actually start on social media. I know. It's their their version of we're starting to date or we're talking is through Snapchat. Right. Yeah. Versus of, the phone. Not, not a lot of talking going exactly. on on it's that old talking. snappy snap. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but that's where they are talking first is on Snapchat um, or TikTok. Um, and then they become friends. Mm-hmm. And then they start exchanging pictures and then mm-hmm. they start exchanging nude pictures mm-hmm. and then they start meeting up. Um, and I, I tell the teenagers, I, I can't even, I would venture to guess at least a third to half of the teenagers that I see for child sexual abuse exams. Um, this story starts with when I ask, well, how did y'all meet? It starts with, well, we met on Snapchat, probably a third to half. Wow. Um, yeah. And so that is where they're, exposed um, to people that are not healthy. Okay, so for parents out there listening who might be going, I'm going to make my kid 
<laughs> remove Snapchat from their phone. Can you speak yeah. some rationality? Because here's, sure. here's my theory on this. You know, I teach at Baylor, human sexuality, and we're talking to, to buyers of sex on all these issues. And a growing theory I have is one of the reasons that so many people are, um, are, are encountering unwanted sexual behavior or abuse or things like that is because we don't talk about sex. Mm-hmm. And if we do talk about it, we talk about it in this cryptic, almost purity culture yes, sort so, of way yes. that has harmed so it, well intentioned. Sure, but it has harmed so many people. Yes, um, as they've moved into adulthood. And so, what would you say to the parent who just immediately knee jerks and says, "Death to social media"? Mm-hmm. Like, is there a way to do social media that? Um, doesn't require sending nudes and things like that. <laughs> yes. Yeah, so when um, you, so you would think probably a lot of I get that question a lot is how did you do yeah. social media with your kids? Um, and I think a lot of people think that I would never let my kids have social media. Well, I I start everything at um, at an age where I can teach them and monitor first. So my kids were allowed to have Instagram in sixth grade. But they didn't have their own phone, so it was on the family iPad. And so they had an Instagram account, but it was on the iPad that I controlled, mm-hmm. that my husband and I controlled. So we started with that. Instagram was relatively safe back then um, and still mostly is. But back then, they didn't have the disappearing messages, right? Um, which they do now. Mm. So the beginning rules were you can have Instagram. When they started having DMs that would disappear um, I, my role was you can't use those. Like if I see where it just says photo, 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 mm-hmm. you're getting Instagram taken away. Mm-hmm. So that was the starting point in sixth grade. And then monitoring it and making, and we did a little social media contract about um, you can't post people's pictures without their permission. So mm-hmm. again, starting with consent. Mm-hmm. Um, you can't th- do things that are you know harmful to somebody else, making fun of somebody else, something that you would not want your principal, pastor, and grandmother to see. Um, <laughs> so so <laughs> in essence, good. you're guiding, guiding you're healthily them. That's guiding right. them. Guided you're exposure. giving them some guidelines. You're letting them yep. experience it, but yep. it's guided. It's not, That's let me just correct. hand you this gun and you figure out how Absolutely. to shoot it. Absolutely, yes. Or not shoot it. It's We're going to walk together. But what about the, what do you say to the parent who is constantly looking over their kids' shoulders? Because for, for Emily and I, with our kids... Like our kids knew, we have your passwords. We can get mm-hmm. into your account anytime we want. Mm-hmm. We don't really ever do it unless we have <laughs> reason to, right? But I think they know that as well. But yes. they, but they still have at the back of their minds at any point, Dad can walk in and pick up my phone. Yes. So, but then I've seen parents who it's like every night they're looking through their kids texts and so there has to I I think there has to be a balance there is and there also um that starts with trust first of all Mm -hmm. right so you have to trust your kid um and again to me I started with the guided um monitoring for sure Mm -hmm. and giving him clear instructions and then when he didn't follow those instructions and and accepted people so one of the things Mm -hmm. was you can't accept people that you don't know well, he would do that all the time just because he's accepting, accepting, yeah. like, without even yeah. thinking yep. about it. And so then he would not do that. And then I'd tell him, you, you're, you're not following the instructions. There's, there's a reason why we have that rule. It's for your safety, right? So he 
did responsibly use Instagram when he was younger. He got a phone in seventh grade. My daughter got a phone in seventh grade. So mm-hmm. at a young age, when I was monitoring more, mm-hmm. when they were innocent and young, mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> right? they showed that they could be responsible. So I trusted them. Now, I didn't give my son Snapchat until he was... 16. He probably mm. was one of the last, the last friends yeah. Yeah. to have Snapchat's it. different, isn't Snapchat's it? Snapchat's different. A, and yeah. I will tell you, it's also different for guys and girls. Yeah. Yes. I, I, mm-hmm. I, you know, I know that's not fair. Right. But I told my daughter, you're, you're not getting Snapchat probably. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> and, um, and she said, that's not fair. And I said, well, I understand that, but because, and I, I'm, I'm, she's a great kid, but girls are, um, or, or I should say my daughter. Again, my children are very different. My daughter is very social and outgoing, and she wants to do things that make people happy mm-hmm. and smile and laugh. And And I know that some of her or her friends are accepting people and chatting with people that they totally. don't know. Oh, yeah. Totally. And that is risky on Snapchat for me because I don't know what that conversation says. Yeah. yeah. Um, so I told her that she's probably not going to get Snapchat. Yeah. And again, Snapchat is... You, as a parent, will not be able to see it, and yeah, so again, we know, you have yeah. to trust your kid. Yeah, and I think right. it's and for, for yeah. parents out there listening. I I think you need to figure out how to be okay with not being the cool parent yeah. that just gives your kids everything. Yes, um, that ne- isn't necessarily expressing love. That you're just yeah. constantly. Oh, my kid's ten, and so they need Snapchat. Yeah, there's a lot of kids out I there mean, that have Snapchat. Don't yeah. be manipulated by your kid going. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm the last one to get it. Well, well that, I'm okay with that. I'm okay with that. I'm okay with well, that. yeah, and that's where this whole parenting thing just brings up do your own work yes you you have your own work to do (laughs) and your kids will be better mom and dad if you do your gut work and you take care of yourself Mm -hmm. and if there is trauma or sexual abuse in the past you know so much of it we overreact and we owe or we project i mean it could go Mm -hmm. either way you know if we've been um abused as a child in some way and then that impacts the way that we parent or hover or control and and have to know everything Mm -hmm. and so do your work every parent is different though you're right brett because you know i don't hover but i definitely used to monitor a lot i i don't I don't sit there and check on my son's texts or my daughter's texts and mm-hmm. um, look at their social media messages or anything like that um, because we talk about stuff all the time. Right. You, we've yes. all talked about how much yep. we talk to our children. Yeah. So I feel like I don't need to do that because he's already talking to me and she's already talking to me. You've created I, an environment where they can trust. Right. You're not going and, to freak and out. And I don't, we, my husband and I don't live with our head in the sand. We, right. we know where, we meet them where they're at. We, we know what teenagers are doing. We know what um, they're exposed to. So we talk to them about it beforehand. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and say, hey, this is, I know this kind of stuff's going on. You know, like this is what we hope that you will choose to do. Um, yeah. When yeah. you are in certain situations yeah. and because we've talked to them about stuff, I don't feel like I have to constantly monitor and, and spy on them mm-hmm. because they know that we know. Yeah. And mm. it's also one of those situations, just like there is normal teenage behavior, which you shouldn't know every single thing about right. your teenage sure. child. Yeah. We like, don't want to probably. <laughs> It's Just like let them figure it out. Well, it's some a, of it's kind of funny. It's one thing <laughs> to create right. a safe space, safe space, but it's another thing to to feel like you know everything. That's just a lot of 
well, you enmeshment know, right, right. happening. With, with our kids, when our kids started driving, I had an interesting conversation with my oldest, Hattie. Um, all the parents around me were getting this app called Three Life 360 or oh, something. Oh, I, I have yeah. it. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, yes, yes. And I didn't have it. I'm like, so I said, hey, babe, I think I'm going to get Life 360. And she goes, dad, please don't. Mm. And I said, well, why? Talk about that. And she goes, I know that you have Find My Phone. Mm-hmm. And I know that you can see where I'm at at any point. Right. But is it necessary that you know how many times I hit the brake pedal or the gas pedal? Oh, or yeah, the... we don't do, yeah, we don't do and, all that. And I yeah. said, I didn't even know it did that. She yeah. goes, Dad, I have friends who have parents who, who they'll call and say, hey, you're running out of gas. Oh, Or, God. hey, yeah. you're speeding. Yeah. Control. Oh. And, Hyper control. And, and, I have and, heard And it was, it was a really, I'm glad that she felt comfortable enough saying, hey, please don't do that. You can trust me. Right. Um, and, and my kids are going to speed. Right. They just, oh, yeah. I no, did. we stopped. They we are. Stopped. Yeah. So yeah, I just, I think for some of you parents out there, just breathe, breathe and let your little birdies <laughs> spread their wings yes. so that they're not crazy when they hit their twenties. Yes, yes, yes. So let's talk about, as we think, um, regarding childhood sexual abuse, what would be some signs of a child maybe that's in your home or if uh, if if one of your kids brings a friend, a friend over, over. Mm-hmm. and you're you've kind of got eyes on the situation, um, what are signs that kids are are, are ex- you do delayed forensic exams? Mm-hmm. So what are those delayed responses to abuse that we might see that we don't know? Sure. Um, so behavior. Let's look at behavior symptoms because that's the biggest thing that we need to be looking for. Mm-hmm. Um, so changes, I, I say not just behavior things to look for, but changes in behavior are really big. So if someone used to have, you know, be really involved um, with their school or friends or sports or something like that, and then all of a sudden they aren't interested in those things anymore okay. and they have a different friend group or, or maybe have one friend that nobody has seen or, or mm-hmm. heard from or met. Um, so changes in their interests. Um, changes in their mood. So, you know, depression, mm-hmm. anxiety, changes in sleep, changes in um, appetite, um, mood swings, like where they're very, they're having outbursts mm-hmm. at home, um, outbursts at school, getting mm-hmm. in trouble at school, mm-hmm. um, pushing back, you know, verbally against teachers when they didn't used to do that. Um, cutting, uh-huh. um, anxiety where they are always worried about something, scared to be around people all of a sudden, uh, nervous around people, um, wanting to be by themselves. Um, so, well, hold <laughs> The thing about this is that's often a lot of just mood swings, changes in sleep, appetite, behavior, being angry, outbursts. That's oftentimes just normal teenage life too. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. So that makes it a little bit hard. And so I tell people and kids, just because they're having depression, anxiety, stress, um, changes in behavior. It doesn't mean that they're being sexually abused. Um, that can be normal behaviors too with a teenager. But if we're talking about a change and it's yeah. prolonged, um, then that's something that you just need to dive deeper into. Like mm-hmm. what's going on? Is there something going on? So behavior changes is one thing. Um, if you start seeing kids who have, um, when we talk about people who might be getting groomed. So things that they start having money or items that they didn't used to have or could afford, Mm -hmm. um, 
that's one thing that you need to look for too. If they become hypersexualized, they're mm-hmm. watching porn all of a sudden when they mm-hmm. didn't used to. Now it could be just that they're watching porn, mm-hmm. but sometimes kids are introduced to porn as part of the grooming process. Mm-hmm. So if they're hypersexualized or if, or if a girl or a guy is starting to have a lot of boyfriends or unprotected sex or risky sexual behaviors, that's another sign mm-hmm. to look for. Then you start looking for physical symptoms. Now that's not something that you might see as an, a friend of the family or a friend, but Some things could be, you know, things like vaginal discharge, Mm -hmm. itching, Mm -hmm. penile discharge, um, trouble, pooping, um, Mm. bladder infections, um, look for cutting scars on the wrists or the thighs. Mm. Um, So there might be physical symptoms. That's a little bit harder for the um, bystander to see Uh and notice. Uh Uh-huh. but and a lot of times they don't report those to the doctor, or the doctor might say, "Okay, well, it's just a bladder infection." Yeah, you or know, hey, you're it, constipated. Yeah, you're constipated. A, uh-huh. Right, right. So a lot of times, again, without the context of the behavioral stuff, in addition, it's hard to figure out, which is why it often goes unnoticed. Yeah. So what do you do if you if you do notice those changes because you can't you, you don't automatically go. Are you being, you know, um, and you don't even want to interrogate that child. But if I have a child and all of a sudden they're stealing at school, you know, they've been a fine, they've been a fine student, but now Mm -hmm. they're in the principal's office, Mm -hmm. they're stealing, they're getting in fights with girls, they're hitting, um, lying a lot. There's just all this disruption. What do I do as a parent if I notice this sudden, like what in the world? That's not... What do I do? That's hard. You you have to try to start conversations with your child. Mm-hmm. You have to ask what's going on. Tell them, you know, how much you love them and want to help them and whatever it is that y'all can get through this. A lot of times, obviously, a child or a teenager will not tell a, per- a parent about what's going on. Right. Especially if it's a family member. Mm-hmm. Um, so if you are not getting any response back from a child and you are concerned about them, Ask them if they would like to speak to a counselor. Mm -hmm. A lot of teenagers are seeing counselors. A lot of kids are seeing counselors, which is great. It is good. Um, And if you just approach it like, you know, a lot of of kids need to talk to somebody. Uh Um, Do you want to talk to somebody that just if you're having a bad day and something's going on, you can talk to somebody and it's not mom or dad. Mm -hmm. Um, So there needs to be a way for that child to make it a safe outcry if something is happening to them. I think it's also where you begin to normalize mental health. Yes. We begin to destigmatize that all of us are on the spectrum of mental health. Mm-hmm. All of us deal with levels and a sliding scale of anxiety or waves of depression. We may not be clinically depressed, right, right. But, but we experience sadness and we experience some depressing times, especially sure. given 2020, Right. especially like with all that we've been through culturally. And so I think it's like the more we can normalize it just in conversation and make it a part of our everyday language, it's like mom and dad have a therapist, mom and dad see a counselor, Um, your friend, like you said, lots of teenagers are seeing, you know, counselors now and it becomes the more normalized and destigmatized it is. It does seem like it's an easier thing to come forward with. I'm, I'm optimistic because I do see so many young children and teenagers who see a counselor Yeah, (laughs) because their parents recognize that they are having, they have some hard times and sad times and anxious times and they, they don't know how to deal with it or how to help their child cope. And so they're like, okay, let's, let's go have you talk to somebody. I have a list of, of counselors and therapists. I think I've texted you before. Yes. Yeah. (laughs) Like who is, who's Yeah. Because I have, I'm so glad that so many parents text me and say, Hey, 
I think my kid just needs to talk to somebody. Who who do you recommend? And I can mm-hmm. I can shoot them three, four, five names mm-hmm. um, because it is being normalized, and we understand how important mental health is, especially with twenty twenty. Mm. I would say this to you, young parents out there with babies. When they get ready to talk, talk to them. Give them a space to talk. Yes. You want to create an environment in your home where your kids can trust you. Because if you've never done that, and all of a sudden now you've got a 16-year-old, mm. oh, yeah. that's going to be hard. It's, tough. it's going to be hard. Very hard. It's tough. It so does start early. So Don't be surprised if you catch your kid masturbating. Mm-hmm. <laughs> okay? That's part of development. Right, right. Don't shame them. Mm-hmm. Don't be surprised when they ask questions about what is this and what is that. Mm-hmm. Give them a space to learn and to grow. I agree. And, but uh, gosh, you know, and that's why I came careful. I always, always, always said parents had to come because it can't just be me talking to your yeah. kid for 30 yes. minutes. Yep. It will not stick. Yep. Um, and, and again, with the little kids, I'm like, you know, parents, you know why they know all these rules about how to stay safe crossing the street and how to stay safe in a car and how to be safe in the kitchen? Because you told them a million times. That's <laughs> right. why they know those rules. So if I'm sitting there telling them how to keep their body safe one time for 30 minutes once a year when you come to Camp Careful, it's not going to stick. Yeah. So parents have to come with those younger age groups, and I tell them they have to say, stay because I want them the parents to learn how to have these conversations. Mm -hmm. That is huge. I mean, they need to understand from the parent how important it is to have body autonomy and Mm -hmm. how important it is to stay safe and how important it is to speak up for yourself and how important it is to have consent. The parents have to teach them that and Mm -hmm. they have to be able to have those conversations. Parents do not want to talk about these things though. They have a very hard time Mm. vocalizing. They want to say it. Yeah. They don't know how to say it. And so Camp Careful gives them hopefully the tools. But then when you start talking about teenagers and mm-hmm. sexual health <laughs> and gosh, they don't, they really just don't want to talk well, about it. Well, and that goes back to Emily's point. Do your work. Do your, do work. your, do work. your work, mama <laughs> and daddy. Like just go ahead because what has been repressed in you will come out sideways yeah. with your children. It just does. For all of us, like mm-hmm. we're not sitting here as perfect parents. We're like, no, this is. Hey, I'm about to start my period. It's I'm having really children, right it's like I'm feeling mirrors like, just walking around, <laughs> triggering you all the time. Or, you know, just, reminding you. Every that, family will hey, have to determine why like, is her sass, what their boundaries really are. Not to on be that. fair, I will go by. That's right now. Oh, for sure. I'm just saying. I can actually put it up there, not have to put it Depending on how you grew up. Yes. But there's even just. And so, you know, regarding our body and like tampons, you know, it's hard all the for, especially for women, I think, who and young girls to feel shame in their bodies about all the things that are happening all the time. We've been over-sexualized or sexualized at a young age and then taken advantage of. And then we feel weird about period and we feel we don't know how to talk about it. So the more we can just talk about our bodies in a normal way, then it becomes easier to take power and and autonomy and say, this is mine. And I tell you, if you, if parents, if you aren't talking to your kids um, about their body or about sex or about child sexual abuse, they're going to get the information from somewhere else. Mm -hmm. They will. Uh, And it may not be accurate. (laughs) So especially when you're talking about just the body and sex, 
all kids will ask the questions, right? How, how did they get a baby inside yeah, her? Right. And I will never forget when my daughter was like six years old and asked me in aisle four of H-E-B that question. <laughs> because I ran into my OBGYN in aisle four of the H-E-B and I was like talking to her. And when we walked away, my daughter was like, who is that? And I said, that's the doctor that pulled you out of mommy's tummy. Uh-huh. And she said, what do you mean? And I said, <laughs> you were in my belly when I was pregnant and I had to have a surgery to get you out. And she goes, oh, I hope she was wearing gloves. <laughs> and I said, she was. And she was like, well, how did I get in your belly? Uh-huh. I was like, well, aisle four yeah, of H-E-B. I was four. like, mommy and daddy had what's called sex. And that's how you get into my belly. Uh-huh. And she was like, what? What's sex? I was like, okay, so you remember like on the... Animal Channel, like National Geographic Channel, we used to watch nature shows all mm-hmm. the time. Oh, loved it. So I was like, well, she's only six, so this is a good way for her to understand it. It's biology. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I was like, the daddy uh-huh. tiger and the mommy tiger, uh-huh. the, the body parts, the penis and the vagina have to go together, and that's how a baby gets mm-hmm. in the mommy. Oh. Mm-hmm. I was like, if you have more questions, why don't you ask me when we're at home? <laughs> Maybe not here on our <laughs> And do you want honey four. bunches of oats yes. or frosted mini wheats? <laughs> right. But I mean, I have to, you have to meet them where they're at. If they're asking you questions, answer them. Yeah. Because if you don't, they're going to make up something in their head. Totally. Or they're going to go to somebody else and another six-year-old is going to give them their version yeah. of the stork dropping the baby. Totally. Yeah. And yeah. And yeah, it's there already... There is no stork. No. And it's already happening at school. I mean, we just, even in fifth grade, guess had some guys approach him and go, said, do you know what a dick is? Mm-hmm. Do you know what... I mean, just in the cafeteria, yeah. they're just talking. Yeah, do just you know talking. what Pornhub is? I'm like, okay, yeah. we may need to... So Gus, of course, was like, well, I know what a penis is. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> He's like... Yes confronting that, but yes. you know, it, they will learn it from somewhere. They will. And, and it, and it will come out in some ways that you may not want them to learn right. it through porn. Right. If we know the average age is eight of yes. exposure. So parents talk to your kids. Talk to your kids. Mm. Um, what do we need to know about when, okay, if you're in the Waco area or are there digital versions of Camp Careful? Are there videos we can watch if they're not in the Waco area? We have a lot of listeners from all oh, over yes. the world now. And so um, how do we get in touch with you or what you're doing with sex education? So if you want just basic information and kind of to know and learn about Camp Careful, I have the website is campcareful.com. Um, Facebook, I have a Dr. Sue Battle Camp Careful website, uh, a Facebook page. And that's where I post a lot of information. I post when I'm having classes live. I have done Zoom classes, which were very well attended. So if you uh, follow my Camp Careful page on Facebook, you can find when I'm going to do my next Zoom or live class. Um, And I also post um, articles or if something's in the news that's going on, I will post most of it on Facebook. Well, we're so excited. Thank you for sharing all your wisdom with us. It's been good. Thank you for having me again. Love it. (laughs) Thanks for joining us. We hope this episode brought some light to your own story and hope for your journey. Make sure to subscribe and leave a comment. For more info on our work, visit JesusSaidLove.com. Until next time. Share the love.